0: This is Kevin.
1: And this is Josh.
0: And on this episode of The Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry, we are actually going to be doing a recap episode. Um, We just had our 20th episode, and uh, we're going to kind of dive into several points from our past guests.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited for this episode. I think this is a great opportunity for someone who maybe hasn't listened to a lot of our episodes. It'll kind of give you a quick overview of a lot of the guests that we've had on pretty good highlights, you know, at least our favorite parts of some of the interviews.
0: Yeah, so I, I'm going to go with the, you know, I just talk about episode one. Uh, Andrew Ortoski, he he really gave us, he, he gave us so much information on the first episode that we actually had to make it two parts, uh, um, which if memory serves, it's the only two part episode that we've done to date. Um, you know, he's, he's a talker yeah. and it, it just ended up being almost what, an hour and 50 minutes. One of the first things he talks about, which just starts off the episode in, in a great manner is is how he got started and just communication on set.
2: Yeah. So right out of college, I started working in a rental house here in uh, was this? Pinellas County and uh, met some people, networked, right? It's all about networking. Um, from there, got on sets, uh, learned that I wanted to work in the lighting and grip world departments, uh, started working on movies uh got in the union started working on the bigger shows learned that you know how it's really done out in the real world college was great and everything but you really learn the on the job training on the job which is working on the shows with the people that have been doing it for years and all the veterans and uh then started making my own connections to the freelance world and commercial markets uh did a bunch of indie work um as a department head where I got my feet wet in uh, learning how to communicate with uh, different departments and working with different uh, cinematographers and just figuring out the process. And of course, in production, there's always uh, problems and it's all about problem solving and uh, managing those expectations to get your day, uh, stay on budget and uh, keep the crew happy. So there's a lot of different pieces and balancing acts involved. And from there, I uh, went for a couple of years. uh, I ran a production company that uh, was out of Clearwater Um, That's where I really got my feet wet as a DP slash product photographer. Uh, It was a requirement of the job that we have collateral created on a budget. So what they do, they use their in house, guys, and we figured it out and made it work. Um, It was a good experience. And from there, uh, I took that experience and went back to freelance and contract work. And yeah, here I am.
1: My first pick, I chose my boy, Brandon Cox, because, you know, I had to go with Brandon. Um, Brandon's episode was one of our first and it was probably one of our best. Um, I've worked with Brandon several times and he is just a great dude. And so I've got two segments I'm going to highlight and I'll just, we'll just go right into them back to back. But my first one was him talking about operating the camera as the DP. And then the second one was about how he lit the bus scene in heist.
3: Uh, It's kind of a little bit of both. It's, it's, it's at a speed also not being able sometimes to get what's in your brain Hmm. and then try to interpret it to an operator. But it's also, it's a control thing too, you know, (laughs) (laughs) know, I'm just being honest. At least you're honest. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know it's it's that it's a control thing and it is like i love to do it mm. i really love to do it and if you ask roger deacons and, and uh you know ellswood sometimes or even robert mm. richardson they can they they operate you know within it right. now within their means obviously Robert is not running around with the city cam you know right. you, you get somebody to do that for you but you know richardson like he loves to operate I love to operate. I'm not saying I'm Bob Richardson, but it's just like Larry even operates too, man. Mm-hmm. I mean Larry operated B camera on Joker. Yeah. So it's not it's not beneath them. I think it's just you're when you have a feeling when you're behind the camera and you're sort of like have a vibe with an actor, you know how they're gonna move and you wanna move mm-hmm. with them. And sometimes you can't you can't express that to an operator, you know, right. unless you have a really good operator, which I do and, and Larry had a really good operator that did that whole sequence in the bathroom. Like that was just that operator and him. They just choreographed that whole thing with Joaquin and that weird dance that he did. Right. But I mean, you know, that, that that's a feeling, you know, that guy just went on intuition and they just, they, that wasn't scripted. They just happened. They just threw him in there and they said, do it, you know, and you got to have that. And I think a good operator has to have instincts and intuition. It's just, it's one of those things where I just love holding the camera. I love being behind the camera because there are two types of DPs or DPs that sit by the DIT and they watch the monitor with the director, right. and I don't discourage that at all. That's that's a, that's the a thing. You want to do it? That's great. There's also the other ones like me that want to be behind the camera, and that's just where they like to function. Right. And I happen to be that
1: guy. Yeah. You know. Do you feel like you have a little bit better feel for you know? You kind of talked about you're able to you know improvise a little bit more too, but do you feel like you're able to get less takes, or that you're at least able to feel the performance out better? From being there in the space with the actor I,
3: I, feel, I feel that because I'm the closest person to them
1: mm. Right? In
3: proximity Right? Right? I'm right there You know? And I've had instances Where there was, for example There was a scene in this film Steven and I did called Marauders, right? And there's a scene At the end, I don't hope anybody's not ready, There's a scene at the end where Two of our main actors, Jonathan Sheck And Adrian Grenier Are at odds with each other And they're in a, they're, they're both pointing guns at each other. Right. And, um, check had to go to this really, John, it's check to go to this really sort of deep emotional place. And he was there and he did it again. And, you know, we were going to cut, move on. And I could see in his eyes, I could see it in his eyes. He wanted another take. So I put the camera down. I walked over to Steve and I said, dude, I think he really needs one more. Hmm. You sure? He's like, oh man, he's already crying. I was like, no, I just, I could just see it. So I put the camera back up. We do another take. Steven's ecstatic because it's like better than the last one. Yeah, he, You know, he's no, like, I'm not saying I directed the scene or
1: anything.
4: Right. It's
3: just one of those things that, you know, Larry's told me about this too, where he's had this sort of, he had the same sort of thing with Joaquin where they sort of were feeling each other out. Hmm. And, you know, he could tell Joaquin wanted another one. So he goes and talks to Todd phillips director i mean this all comes from experience of doing this a lot and also having a director that trusts his dp in order to come back and say something like that you know because normally directors will be like what do you know man you're the cameraman you you know what i'm saying but it's like i'm not saying all directors but a certain direct it takes a certain director to trust the cinematographer to see that and after we finish the take John looked at me and gave me a nod and said, thank you. And I was like, oh, "Well, there you go. Yeah. You know, Cause I could see it, you know? And that's one, you know, that's one little nugget of like, yeah, being an operator. That's just like one thing of many, but, uh, and it makes you feel good when you do a good take and it's cool. And yeah, you do feel, I feel like you do see things you don't see when you're sitting at the monitor. Mm. You know, there's a disconnect for me when you sit at the monitor, whereas the eyes to the diopter and I'm old mother the camera and regardless if so I'm sitting, standing, whatever. Yeah. Um I just that just feels that way. So Well, I mean, again, anytime anybody mentions heists, I have like a I have like, I get like a my brain does like a Ratatouille thing where it like goes out of itself. <laughs> and <then> comes back. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That scene where the guy eats the food and he yeah. goes out. Yeah. And has, well, and the reason I say that is because that movie was very difficult to make. Really? And you're stuck in a bus for weeks on end and there's nowhere to go, man. I mean, like, <laughs> you're stuck. Right. I mean, you have 11 extras uh, and then you have like – you, you know Dave Batista, Stephen Seffer, D.B. Sweeney's driving the bus, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and they're on the bus. And then you got to have all your crew guys on there, so the bus be, starts to become really, really small, really quickly. Right. And 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 well, the way I did that was there's night exterior, there's night interior stuff, and then there's day interior stuff, and then obviously there's stuff outside the bus. But I the bus didn't have the, the bus didn't run right. We had a hard time finding this bus, and so then when it came to we f- figured out how we're going to tow the bus down this stretch of highway in Mobile, Alabama, with the police motorcade, the whole thing. Then I had to light the bus inside, and the, what I did was I made a softbox on the right side of the bus. Um, you know, and there there were no there were no then. There were no um, yeah. quasars.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy they thing. Made, I mean, it's not that far away, but we we didn't have any of that still then.
3: No, there were no there were no
0: uh LED Because you shot
1: then, that right? in fifteen.
0: Twenty fourteen. Fourteen, okay. Yeah.
1: Twenty
3: fourteen, yeah. Then the fall of twenty fourteen and it came out twenty fifteen. That's what it is. So you know there's no sky panels, none of that stuff yet. There's stuff there were there were there were one by one panels and two by one panels. I like don't think light gears that come out yet. get no, none then. of that stuff. So I took a bunch of Kino flows and I lined them all along the side of the right side of the bus. And then we made a soft box so it looked like it was part of the bus. Mm. So then I powered that off the side, like on the side, like in a generator. I had mm. like a little Jenny, I like a little putt, but those powered that all day. And then whatever interior lights we could get on, we turned on, but they weren't really that much. Right. And I just did a mix of daylight and tungsten. That was it, man. I, it, and then the light coming in and the sun coming in, there's no lights like hanging off the side of the bus and doing all that stuff. You just go, right. And, right. and you just go and you do it. That was a different philosophy. Right. And then, you know, because I was experimenting at that point with like, you know, they didn't want to do like certain things, to, like we couldn't get the this bus running. Right. So they're like, Oh, I guess we'll just green screen everything. I was like, are you guys crazy? That's going to be like a nightmare that's going to be a nightmare to green screen. I said, what about rear projection? And I looked into led projection, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, that's the thing now, but in 2014, I found the guy who's now doing like first man and, you know, he's doing the Mandalorian and all this stuff. But at the time I found him, he had, they were just going to do, I think it was straight out of Compton. They were working on something. Mm -hmm. And, we priced it all out. How we're going to do it? The whole thing. It came up to almost like four hundred thousand dollars. And of course, you know, on a nine million dollar movie, nine point whatever, nine ten million. They're not going to pay for that, right? So I said, "All right, we're not going to do green screen. We're going to do poor man's." And I said, "We're going to see what happens." And there are scenes I could break that down for you if you were sitting with me and we watched it. Mm-hmm. Some of them you can tell. Some of them you would not be able to tell. Wow. You just you would think we think we're in a moving busted nighttime, but it was. I I know where they are obviously and there's right. certain ones where you're like well that's clearly poor man's or whatever And but I that was the one thing that just scared the crap out. I just did not want to like screw that up and then we did it and it worked and it was great that was a little outside of the box but I'm just trying to think like where else we're like and you know there's big sources in there uh, in certain areas in, in, in that film I'm just trying to think of all the locations because it was such a long time ago um, yeah Marauder's Marauders I had a few where I would like a big Source outside and then there, You know Marauders we had to make the rain in that movie There was no rain in that movie we made all the rain in that
5: hmm. Everybody
3: thinks it's like god how'd you guys Shoot in the rain oh, well We had to make it you know Um yeah Line of Duty Well Line of Duty was different because The, the film's majority Day exterior right? There's, right I think There's only a couple interiors In that movie some interiors In some cars an apartment building and an abandoned building. But again with that, you know, outside I didn't light a lot outside. I used negative fill mm-hmm. and I use a lot of like rags and I and certain things, yeah, I would use an eighteen K and a one point eight. And that would really be it. You know, I'd key with an eighteen K and then I'd edge with a one point eight. And then you just block it out and, and and but that was really it, man. I, I didn't do a lot of stuff. Now when he goes to the house at the end, I blasted the side of the house with 18K, 4K, hmm. eighteen k four k one eight one eight eighteen k I would just I and then I just you know atmosphered the whole thing no no lights inside you know and he had a flashlight and he would do it like that
0: so after you went Brandon Cox, I had to make sure that another DP was represented and Nick Matthews uh, episode fifteen this this guy the way he thinks and the way he sees shadows is remarkable. Um, I, I'm, I'm very excited to say that I, I'm going to have the opportunity to be his first AC for various episodes of black veil.
6: I mean, I would say that, you know, as Dan and I looked at a lot of the sort of reference points that we were interested in, you know, even like if you guys, I can send you guys some of these, if you want to see, I'm not even sure if I send them to you, Josh or not. I, I definitely sent them to Dan and my crew. Um, but you know, as we were sort of looking at what is our southern gothic look like? What does it feel like? What is that? You know, what is what is that uh, visually on screen? Uh, there were a number of different things that we were trying to do. Um, but one of those was I just didn't feel that we could shoot. It needed to have a sense of it needed to have a sense of some level of importance. You know, a mixture of like grounded impressionism is kind of how I look at it, because it's it's all pulled from this character's point of view. And not not that it's first person perspective, but we're making choices that uh, put the audience into her experience. And so as a result, you know, the lenses were something that were really important to me. Um, we were we wanted to find a set of lenses that gave something we didn't want something that felt clinical we didn't want something that felt too sharp we wanted something that felt a little painterly something that felt a sense of time something that felt a little aged you know and something that felt uh it's like sort of like all those old like you know there's some edmund Uh, Teske photos and some Larry Clark photos we were looking at there's just like, just this older lenses, older film kind of feel Um, and we didn't want something that felt overly hyper clean or overly um, kind of modern, you know, and so as a result we were looking at lenses that we thought would give us that Um, and that, I ended up reaching out to a number of different lens manufacturers that I felt like might have something that would really fit the look of this film. And we ended up hearing back from Cook, which was honestly like the only ch- real choice that I, I really wanted was this set of Cook Pancro classics, which we ended up with, that they're incredible lenses. They, they are, you know, great for skin tone, but also there's technical things about them that I love, but ultimately I just felt like they had a feeling that was both – somehow grounded but also you know it, it hit all those things it was felt grounded but impressionistic it felt three-dimensional it felt textural without overwhelming the image and kind of becoming muddy and sort of overly soft um it felt you know it it, it felt like it gave us a real character look to the film mm-hmm. something unique and something that gave more nuance and textural something that made it feel organic when you're you know, so much of what's shot today is, is hyper clean and hyper, uh, sort of hyper real. We wanted something that was transportive emotionally and spatially, you know, to this sort of Gothic Southern Gothic kind of feel. Um, and so those lenses we got, we, we, we ended up getting a set of those and, um, we mostly shot this on like a, you know, a 21, 27, 40 and hundred. Um, I think our, were our workhorse lenses and, um, you know, because you're looking for, in certain instances, you're looking to compress space and really uh, vo- be very, very voyeuristic. When you look at a character, there's something foreboding about, you know, a long lens far away looking at a character and sort of the audience is peering in at someone in a voyeuristic way. They're seeing, you know, they're being seen by someone else that they don't know about and can't see. But then there's also this sort of more subjective, immersive kind of, wider angle lenses, you know, shooting a close-up on a 40 millimeter really places you into a space, but it also, uh, you know, it also gives you like, uh, it's not so wide angle that it's sort of just about the space. It sort of calibrates where your eye looks. Um, and so those, I think those lenses were a big deal for us. We ended up kind of pushing the film and you know, a, a somewhat bleached bypass sort of feel. We shot everything at 1600 ISO, um, because we, and we shot some tests too, you know, before we started production, um, and kind of, I had a lot that I designed that I showed Dan and he really liked. And, uh, you know, we, I showed him tests at 800 and 1600 ISO. I showed him tests at, you know, with, uh, the lenses with filtration. We ended up using a half, an eighth, not a half, we ended up using an eighth black pro mist and, um, Uh, you know, that kind of sort of blooms the highlights a bit. It sort of softens the contrast a little. Um, And we try to use, you know, it gives, it gives something that's sort of impressionistic and organic to sort of every frame, as much as those sound like bullshit words. It's like, once you see the image, it just sort of, Oh, okay. This clicks into this.
1: So I feel like no podcast, overview episode would be complete right now without Jonathan Chambers and his Hyundai story. Um, It's a great story, but if, if you ever get to meet JC, um, he has a lot of stories. He's been in the business a long time. He's a DJ, UPM and AD. Um, He also line produces. Um, He's been a big help to me in the business Um, but he's got a lot of stories and he is just a fun person to meet, chat with, get to know, and even better person to work with on set.
5: 2005 or six, a long time ago. In the early days of motion control, where if you wanted to do multiple passes in a scene, you actually had a camera that was, was computerized and it tracked the exact same motion every time you'd program in what you wanted to do. And this monster thing was as big as this table here. It was gigantic. It was a big pain. But that's the way you would do multiple layers across the same scene. So the scene, the the commercial was there were three different models of Hyundai car. And you see the first one in an urban setting. And then you see another one in a a residential setting. And I can't remember what the third one was.
0: Where did this take place? This is in
5: Miami. And, Um, they're driving around town and the idea is that they all meet up at the end. And the last shot of the commercial is the three cars going around this big fountain in downtown Miami. But now that seems pretty simple, except for the fact that what was happening was you were seeing a line of these three cars. So when you saw the first car go by, we actually had to do multiple passes, with the, with this motion control camera to show instead of one car, there was 50 cars. Hmm. So we had to shoot those shots. Well, then the grand shot, which is a story I told you before, mm-hmm. was on the—what fr- they wanted was on the freeway, which is I-95, that the, car, the lines of cars come from three different points and meet up at the exact same place, driving down the freeway, while the camera is seeing the um, skyline of Miami— all the tall skyscrapers in Miami with the sun rising in the background. Or it could be sunset, but the point is the sun is very low at the horizon. So it had to be done from a helicopter in order to get that angle. And these cars were on the freeway, and they had to be lines of cars without any other cars except our cars. So that was kind of complicated. Miami traffic. Right. So we had to arrange what the, what the CG guys told us is you have to have at least 100 yards— ahead and behind of the cars that's completely clear of other cars. And if it's, that's clear, then we can move, so to speak, move that empty space along with the cars and it'll be fine. But we need to have the car... Now, nowadays, it would be a lot easier. But back You'd then probably we, just
1: do it all CG to begin with. Right.
5: Um, but the cars had to actually... The three individual cars... We actually... In that case, we used two pair... Uh, three pair of cars. I don't really remember the reason that, but boy, so we had three pairs. They still had to arrive at the exact same point at the exact time from the helicopter's perspective looking down, which was the complicated part. So what we did was we arranged with Florida Department, FDOT, that they would not close the freeway, but we could do what was called a rolling roadblock where police officers are in the freeway and they slow the traffic down and we could be in front of the police cars and they would basically be holding traffic back at 40 miles an hour. And our cars could be ahead of us. Now, again, the cars are coming from three different points. So I had an on-ramp to my right. If you think of left to right, I had an on-ramp on one side of the freeway, coming overpass, coming over and dropping down the freeway. I had the main freeway, and then I had an on-ramp. So they all had to get on and get together. And they only need to be together for about 10 to 15 seconds at this critical moment. The problem was you're, you're doing a roadblock on the freeway. So you have to hold those exits and make sure no other cars are getting on the freeway ahead of you. And so you have this gap. So I, I, um, I knew I was going to get three police officers. And the day before, I went to the three start points of where I had the cars parked. And with my stopwatch timed the number of seconds it would take from where their start point would be to the point they would have to meet up. So basically it basically was doing a mathematical thing. So at the moment of truth, I was in the – I had three, the three cruisers on the freeway blocking the three lanes. I had another cruiser holding traffic at one on-ramp and another cruiser holding the traffic at the other ramp. And when I said lock it up. The off-rance locked up. The three cruisers, we pulled onto the freeway, like about five miles from the moment of truth. And they started slowing down, holding the traffic, and my first set of cars got in front. And we're coming down, and I'm using my stopwatch. I'm on the cell phone to the helicopter. I'm on the radio to the three— different cars, groups of cars, groups A, B, and C. And the, and the police is on his radio to his other crews, other officers who are holding the traffic and driving with him. It's all, it's, you know, timing thing. So we take off and I'm looking at my stopwatcher, counting down, counting down and I say, okay, uh, we were, we were group, I guess, A. Um, and we were already cruising and the traffic was being held. So I knew I had a clear spot in front. I could see we had the clear spot in front. And then I said, ready, group two, go. And then X number of seconds later, group three, go. And if my timing was right and everybody's doing their job, they would all line up at the exact moment for like five seconds right underneath the camera. And so we did that and went through. And as soon as we got past the, the moment, I was, you know, I saw those, the directors on the phone and said, well, what do you think? Sir. <laughs> and he said, well, let's do one more for safety, which means we got it on the first take. And we did it again. And said it was just fine. But we had it on the first day. Wow. But it was pretty amazing. And I wish I had a copy of that commercial. I keep I went back on YouTube to try to find it a couple of years ago, and I did find it. But I, I couldn't save it.
1: How much so, were you sweating that when you were having to plan
5: all that out? Oh, big time. Big time. I mean, think of all the factors. i to have all the cars at the same time. I had to have it clear. The weather had to be right, I couldn't control that. The helicopter had to be at the right spot. You know, The sun had to be coming. I mean, there was this window of probably— 15 minutes that it all had to happen and if any one thing failed it wouldn't have worked
1: how long did you have all the police for i mean how many takes did you realize we you only think, did two takes yeah i know you did two but how many do you think you would have been able to do had it not worked the first time i mean how maybe how three ma- maybe three maybe three
5: yeah, it's not a lot. No, no, it had to really work the first time. Yeah. How long did it take to reset for take number two? Well, actually, actually it actually took like a half an hour to reset. I figured Because, be. because, oh, yeah. because by the time we got off the freeway yep. and then got back, it was like, you know, at least five or six miles to get back to You're doing to like,
1: an eight-hour day just for this one shot because well, actually, you have to get there. Yes. Get everything in. And, yes. You know, this is something someone wouldn't think about. It's just to do this one shot. It's well one
5: day. Yeah. Eight actually, hours. We did, actually we did it in basically half a day. You did. Once we got it all I I can't remember what time we started, but I certainly was there a couple hours before dawn and the driving team, the precision driving team, um was there, you know. But you know, getting all the officers and everything. But once the officers showed up, um, you know, it was like and the helicopter court was, co- was coming from, I don't I don't know if it was coming from Miami international or for a small, another, you know, small spot. I mean, now we do it with a drone. Yeah. Um, but this was, you know, the big old friggin helicopter for shooting, filming. And so th- we, they, had, they had to get up in the air, the cops. I mean, everybody had to be at the right place at the right time to make this thing happen.
0: Zachary Ramos came by the studio and he is a production designer and he is also a little bit of a nomad. He, um, has no issues traveling across the country for jobs. and he'll he came to, and sat down with us and talked scheduling and managing expectations as a production designer and, and just how his team constantly has to pay attention to not only the script but the schedule to ensure that the day is met because if they get behind, it does not typically end well on set.
7: Okay, so the first thing we had to do was look at the schedule. And this is where the schedule and talking to somebody about the schedule is key. I ran into this issue with the Missy Elliott video, and that just became a whole nightmare, is because scheduling. If I tell you to be able to do this and to be able to have the manpower, and again, the cost, we need to shoot this on this day, this on this day, this on another day. We had a full room we were building inside of another room there. So I needed to make sure we could dress one room, then load in that other room to build while we dress another room on the back end. So it's looking at the schedule and just saying, "Okay, we need scene one to happen before scene two, scene two to happen before scene three. If Scene three happens before scene two. Arms up in the air. We got a problem. Production needs to understand. We just don't have the manpower. So first, it's looking at the breakdown of what logistically has to flow and telling production, we have to stay in this. At this point now, we are too close. We just don't have the time, money, unless you're going to give us more money, then you can do whatever the hell you want. Money dictates everything. So once you have that, then we look at, okay, what do we need to buy? A funny thing about your potty is we didn't have enough beds. So we were stealing our Airbnb beds almost every other day. I didn't sleep on a bed. For like two nights because they were on location because we just ran out of money for bedding when you have to have 16 rooms and 16 mattresses because we were shooting three to four rooms a day we're jumping between those rooms i just that's a lot of mattresses it's a crazy concepts and again because we are in florida we don't have the prop shops to get these mattresses for five ten bucks i'm going every night buying a mattress flipping it the next day returning it because i also have three 26 foot trucks Full of furniture, so I had kids coming in in and out every day. Yeah, I, had I always day saw players. Yours. you guys
1: always had people moving in and out. It, it, it was crazy. It,
0: it was remarkable. I mean, we we were helping you at one point. Um, one of the grips and I um, helping one of your guys. Back up the trailer to, I mean, not trailer, the truck to not hit the other truck. Mm-hmm. So that way the third truck could leave because he was boxed in and that was the truck that you guys had loaded and was ready to leave. It was the, it was the, this is why you have Teamsters. Yeah. It was, it was the biggest back and forth we, I had ever seen with three 26 foot U hauls. I'm looking at this going, how no one got hit or bumped each other was remarkable. And it was like four of us out here going, all right, load, well, to, the left, load to the left, load to the
1: Because there were people out there paying attention. And, and being conscious of that so for the trifecta on my side of episodes um, I'm going with Adam Dara he is an insurance broker for Rapbook. and it's not a long segment but I think it's a really informative one and it's something that I talk with a lot of people about and a lot of indie filmmakers don't know about what errors and omissions insurance is and how important it is so get your learning cap on because you're about to get schooled by Adam Dara
8: yeah, so E and O, errors and omissions. Although I've gotten last week I got a bunch of calls for Arizona missions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is incorrect. Eh,
8: yes, that is incorrect. You must have just heard that spoken of and thought, why is this an insurance thing? <laughs> so ENO covers um covers the liability of of your film for uh, like someone suing you because of copyright infringement. Um, or because you have the same name uh, as as someone else, or because they say um, this is based on my story and I never copyrighted it, but it is my story and the filmmaker stole it from me. I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but uh, a producer that I knew who was on Sex, Lies, and Videotape way, way, way back in the day with a you know, major studio and major, major film, but there was a woman who was in a photograph, and I can't remember if it was a stock photo or or something like that. It was something they were able to use. But James Spader's character in that movie is, is twisted and weird. And that photo happened to be in his house. So she called the producers and said, um, I'm suing because they used my picture in this house, which they were allowed to use. Um, but because this guy is kind of pervy, uh, you know, they're Basically, they're slandering me in some way because they use my picture in this house. Hmm. Um, and it was unintentional. And again, they were allowed to use it. But something like that happens in our films, um, especially if you've got a small film that you think no one will ever see. And then a lot of people do see it. So it gives it protects you from them those unintentional sorts of things um, often used for like a distributor will want you to have it. Because if, um, if you don't have it and someone were to take out a suit like that, they, if you don't have it, it'll go straight at the distributor and they want to make sure that they have some protection. Um, it's important to say, like with any insurance stuff, this is all unintentional, right? So if you rented a camera and you had great rental equipment coverage, and then you picked it up and you threw it on the ground (laughs) on purpose, You know, that might not be covered because that was an intentional destruction of property. Right. Um, and same with this. So if, if you did in fact steal someone's story or if you didn't do a proper title search, um, and the, you know, the film that you're producing was in fact ripped off from somebody else. Um, you know, you, you open yourself to not being protected because, um, because you did something intentional and, and wrong. That gets into sort of the, the criminal right. line, you know. I think the camera, the camera example is good. You can't pick up a camera and intentionally destroy it and hope right. that insurance will pay for it.
0: I see your insurance broker, and I raise you a payroll company. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Julie from Greenslate came on, and she is... She, she's also a podcaster herself. She has two podcasts, I believe. Um, and she... The other,
1: yep. The other 50%. We're going to give a little shout out.
0: Yep. Um, which it, I've listened to a few episodes. It's actually really, really good. I, I highly recommend it. Yep. It, it is. Um, yep. She talks about how the entertainment industry is way behind the times in digitizing payroll.
9: GreenClick's mission really is to digitize the production process from end to end. So we're really looking at digital start forms, digital time cards, digital purchase orders, digital accounting, digital residuals, like the whole process end to end, being digital, being green being the way that it really should be. And for some reason, the entertainment industry is 100 years behind everybody else in technology, right? Right. Um, But GreenSlate really has developed their software in such a way that it's all in one platform, which is unique from any other payroll company, and it can be digital end-to-end, which is also unique with all the payroll companies. So now it's a matter of the technology is here, the software is here, and now it's a cultural shift to get everybody to buy in and do it that way. Yeah. Well, it you know, it takes a small army and we're, we're pretty lean, but it does take, it is a lot of moving parts because when you have, you know, developers developing the software and keeping up with it and making changes and making enhancements. So there's a whole kind of developing team that's always working, making it better and better and better. But also we have all the infrastructure, like as an independent filmmaker, you may not have all of the infrastructure that like a studio would have, right? You may not have labor relations. You may not have, you know, your legal counsel. You may not have tax experts. You may not have all these pieces, but as a payroll company, we have all those pieces. So, you know, we have the labor relations you consult with about your labor. We also have paymasters running your payroll. We have sales and marketing people getting the brand out there and bringing in the business. Um, So it does does take a small army uh, to service these shows and it's not, you know, and we're serving lots of shows at the same time. So right. we're able to scale up and down, you know, depending on what's going on. But, it, you know, it's a whole team of support. It's really like your back office.
4: Well,
1: since, you know, we're, we're raising each other here and we're doing poker stakes, I couldn't let you equal my DP. So I brought a third DP to the game, um, Mike Delator or Mike D, as we call him. Um, he is the director of photography from Brightburn, among many other things. Also used to work at Panavision. Um, he's a great dude. And I think the segment where we talk to him about the barn and the house houses in Brightburn not being at the same location and what they did VFX-wise, and then it goes right into some practical versus VFX chat, is super interesting. About how a DP works with a VFX supervisor and how movie magic is made
4: yeah oh it's I mean it it was key because um, we went out there and it's funny because I was looking at some of these stills a couple of days ago um, and um, you know the great thing about scouting with that with that with that with the Artemis prime was that it's an iPad so you could you take a you take a frame grab and then you take the stylus or your finger and you could draw on on the actual iPad like the house. And so we frame oh, shots awesome. up where yeah, we would frame shots up where we would say okay, here's the barn in the background and then we would draw a little house right there on the corner and say all right, here's where the house is going to be. And then we would say okay, so because we did it both practically and and through CG, right? So there were times where we said, okay, we're going to build a flat. So like at the beginning of the movie, when she's walking around the house trying to find him, she actually exits the back door and you see through the back door that she's going to the barn. Well, that was just a flat that we put up. And and we when we, when we, when we scouted that, we were able to say, all right, that's going to be a 35 millimeter here. Um, we're going to build we're going to have to build a platform like the house is raised because the house would be raised and then um, this is how much of walls we need Uh, and uh, and and it helped us just kind of like figure that out right Um, and also know like okay when we look back this direction a certain direction how how much of of a visual effects house did we need oh we only need a corner of the house Um, or no, we see the whole house. Um, and so it, it was really critical because, you know, um, there was, uh, there was really no going back. We, we shot the house for the first two and a half weeks and then we shot the barn for the, the rest of that. So there was never any going back to the house and saying, oh, we forgot this shot to look outside or so forth and. Now, um why did they have to it be was really, different it's locations?
0: Really cool. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but why, why were they <laughs> That's a great you
4: know. <laughs> uh because you know, we we fell we fell in love with the house um and then we fell in love with the barn and they were in two separate locations. And so hmm. yeah, what well, you know, you know, you go you go scouting and um you know on a on a on a bigger picture uh they probably would have built the house where the barn was or or vice versa, built the built a barn on the property of where the where the house was. But um we found we you know we scouted that house and it was beautiful and we um and it gave us a lot of cool a cool um cool things to do um with our visuals as far as like going around the house and everything. Um, more than any of any of the other houses that we looked at could, um, but but it the property was it wasn't super residential, but it was residential enough. Like that that house actually had a pool in the backyard. Um, it was just that the, uh, you know it didn't make sense that there was a pool, and then um, and the barn was was kind of like too small and 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 it was actually was not in a good shape to sh- like in a uh, structurally, good shape to shoot in, um, and then we f- we found that barn and we and we were like, wow, this is really cool because there's a lot of really like spots to hide and uh, uh, ways that we can use it to kind of like add tension to to coming into this really dark place. Um, and it also we we built the uh, the pot where the where the spaceship is in the in the um, in the floorboards. Like we built all that, so it gave us gave us space to do that. Um, so we made the decision that uh, that we were gonna do it, which was really difficult. It, it did not make it easy. Um, there were many times where we wanted to turn around and 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 we were like, guys, there's we can't turn around. There's supposed to be a house there, <laughs> remember? <laughs> um, you know. And, and there were many times where, like, I in my shot list, I had multiple. Like, there's the scene where, like, you go, you were talking about where she walks out because she hears the noise, and she goes through the, through the um, the clothes uh, uh, uh the clothes hangers, the clothesline. That, I mean, that was shot uh, both at the house, and then we shot it at the barn with clothes with the clotheslines rebuilt there. So, um, there are many times where we're like, okay, uh, two shots have to happen. This one scene happens in two two actual locations. And we had to be prepared for that and schedule that and be like, all right, these are the shots we need from this direction. And these are the shots we need from this direction. Um, and then we, I mean, when you look at them, they're, they're, they're pretty seamless. I, I, um, I even look at it and go, wow, that's, that was great. We can't even tell that we're not at the house.
0: Well, unfortunately, I can't raise you again on DPs because we've now talked about the three TP. We've now talked about the three DPs that have been on the show, but I do have a wild card, Catherine Uh-oh. Sullivan. If you remember, we ended up going into a pretty lengthy conversation about her career as a producer out in LA, and in one of the segments, yep. we talked about how Netflix, because she's um, a producer, uh, nailed it one of the one of the top Netflix shows right now. And how just how creative Netflix is, how receptive they are to ideas, and how Netflix constantly collaborates with producers to ensure the best product is released. They're not the kind of company that says, This is the way we're gonna do it and you'd have no say. They they openly they they have an open line of dialogue and and she reinforces all that in this segment.
1: Well, and Kevin, just to you know, like not let you outdo me, I'm gonna flop on my own segment to your Cat Sullivan oh. segment, which is where she talks about the different types of reality show producers.
10: Um, I think Netflix, as like as a network, um, they really put creativity at the forefront like kind of above all else. And I think that's kind of what helps drive them and push them to, and pushes them to kind of excel. Um, You know, I don't work, I haven't worked specifically at Netflix, but my understanding from their culture is that they're very, um, they really want people to do like, to be, to take the initiative. So they Mm. want people to take the initiative and they want people to put forth ideas. and, And that's what I learned internally from like, from looking from afar. That's what I've, kind of gleaned from my experiences with them but then working with them probably the closest I've probably worked with the actual network execs would be on Nailed It and they're very receptive to like the craziest ideas and they'll talk it through and they'll kind of take all those ideas and and then they'll um they'll decide what's the right path or or they'll they're willing to talk things through a lot of networks have an idea of what a show is and then they don't want to kind of talk things through or or collaborate And I think that's why Netflix kind of excels is because they will collaborate with their producers. They're not just saying, make us a show. That's it. We don't care about what your ideas are. Right. Like, deliver it. So that helps them, I think, get a new perspective on whatever idea it is that they're trying to sell.
1: And when you're getting notes from them, I mean, is it like other you know, places where you're getting notes from marketing, you're getting notes from this or that branch of the, of the company, or, you know, not just creative department, are you kind of getting notes from all over the place or?
10: No, well for, for pretty, I mean, this is pretty much across the board for all networks you're dealing with. Like you're, you appoint people from the network that you're dealing with, right. And they're the ones giving you all the notes. So they might get some information from marketing and and sometimes with, um, Netflix will get some information from other, like from social or for marketing for certain ideas, like what's doing well in the, um, social market. But overall they're not always super specific about which, where the notes are coming from. They're just kind of giving you, Mm -hmm. these are the notes that we've kind of come up with as a company. Gotcha. Yeah. I just pulled up my resume so I can remember. Um, (laughs) that's what, that's what
1: websites and resumes are there for.
10: (laughs) Um, so, okay. So, on the production management, on the production management side, there is a line producer, and that person's like the money. They're like they're the money person, so they're they're the person to tell you when you can't do your thing, do the the thing you want to do. That's their ultimate overall job, and they negotiate your deal. But uh, so that's that producer. They're they're not really in the producing department, but they're a producer. If that makes sense. Um, on the producing department side, the lowest level producer, and this is all pretty much for um I would say for competition television or reality television. Um, and there's some crossover to scripted, but then scripted is a little bit different and I'll explain that later. But um the for an AP, which is an associate producer, they're the lowest level. So they're the people that have maybe just bumped up from being a coordinator or a PA. And they're the ones that are kind of developing um, they're the ones kind of running the department on the lower level. Like they're the ones helping the producers stay organized, managing documents um, and just providing support overall for the department. And then there's within the associate producers, there's a few different sections within that, within that level. So like a field AP or a story AP, those are the ones that are like logging notes and tracking the story of the contestants or of the cast members and they'll, at the end of the day, do something what we call as a hot sheet, which is basically summarizing, like, the information for that show that day. So it's like, oh, Kevin made a tart. And then everything <laughs> fell apart. And then that they use that for the interviews later on. An associate challenge producer is helping to produce the challenges, which is creatively coming up with what the challenges will be. So you're basically creating games all the time. And then... Also logistically producing it, so for like on master Chef that on that show when I was an a p on that that involved like we did a shoot on the top of rooftop in Vegas with a hundred and one um with with a hundred and one performers from all over vegas, and that that consisted of like figuring out how to get a table to float on top of a pool um. <laughs> the booking of all the dancers so that you can fill them into the table and managing those kind of the minutiae of the logistics for that, for the challenge. A challenge producer is like the head of the team. So they're the ones that are like the lead for, for a challenge. And on, on any given show, they'll have like probably two to three challenge producers, depending on the, depending on how complex the challenges are. And they're the ones kind of running point to make sure that uh, one, that all the logistical things are happening. If you need diners, all the diners are there. If you need extras, all the extras are there. Um, That everything is legal because the big thing to keep in mind for game shows and for competition shows is that there's money on the line. So there's all these laws about how you operate a game to give away money. So you have to be, you have to write like, you learn how to write like a lawyer basically to write rules. So, you have to write challenge rules of like all the specifics about what you can and cannot do on the show. So, essentially, it's like you are writing the rules for Monopoly and like <laughs> everyone has to follow them. And then you're the one who's like, you can't, Rebecca, stop. You cannot do that. So, you're like really not the funnest person. Um, <laughs>
1: And are those given out, are those given out to them to all read like before they come into the show or are they kind of like given that, you know, during, how's that done?
10: Yeah. So, um, the rules side of things is interesting because before anyone joins a competition, there's something called series rules that are sent to them. Series rules are like a 20 page legal document about the structure of the show, outline of the competition, a lot of stuff about like collusion and you can't, um, you can't uh, basically rig the competition. Hmm. So um, that's sent out like before anyone can come on to the actual series. This is any competition show before they can come on, they have to sign the series rules and understand them. And then when you're like, if you're watching a show, the host will explain what the challenge is. And then you'll see the contestants start. They'll run to wherever they need to go or, you know, they'll whatever it is. Um, But in real, in reality, there's like a, false start so you see them run but then we stop them someone like myself will step in read them the challenge rules answer any questions that they could have on that and then they have to like sign it and then like raise their right hand and pledge that they understand the rules it's very all very serious and then and then they get to go into the competition i could see why you cut
1: that part out
10: Yeah. Yeah. And then when they're in the competition, there's, we're usually hovering around to make sure no one's breaking any of the rules. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're basically like narcs, like on the set, just trying to like keep track of everyone. But it's like a very important part because you want to make sure that the, um, that the gameplay and that the overall competition doesn't lose its integrity.
0: All right. I see how it is. You're going to go, you're going to double down and go two in a row. We're supposed to be doing every other. That's fine. That's fine. But I am going to end with one of my mentors, James Duke, otherwise known as Jimmy. He, he gives us a, how the pre-production process goes and how pitching to networks is done in LA. There's a lot of questions on pitching and you know, e- even when he was talking, I didn't realize that even writers um, don't have agents anymore; they have managers. And he dives into the differences and how LA continues to, or Hollywood continues to shift their mentality on pitching projects to networks.
11: Yeah. Um, so, whenever you're um, so so pitching a Pitching a uh, television show is like pitching anything else, right? It's just you—you you have to um, you have to have relationships to get into the room. So typically, the way it works is um, as a writer producer, you're going to have reps, and they try not to take uh, unsolicited pitches. Uh, it protects them legally. Now I'm talking about studios and production companies. So the the primary way you get into a room to pitch something. Is your reps, um, agents, managers? Um, they're, they're, they have relationships with these development executives. These development executives have a relationship with them, and they're letting them know. They're letting them know, hey, NBC is looking for this type of show. Uh, Hulu is looking for this type of show, um, and then just looking at branding and content. People, you know, you know that that feels more like a CBS show. That feels more like a Netflix show. You know, that kind mean? of thing. And so um, what they'll do is they'll just put their clients up for meetings. They're just like, uh, you know, the agent and manager will, will, will say, hey, do you have anything that fits X? Because we know that, you know, you know, such and such network or streaming service is looking for, you know, something that fits business mold. And so if you do and the agent and manager reads it and thinks, okay, this is good, let's, let's, let's get you a meeting. That's the primary kind of typical way in which um, things get set up. Now, as you guys are probably aware, the industry has gone through this major shift in the past year or so um, with the WGA um, basically pulling out of agencies because of all the problems they had with um, agents double repping. And so um, a lot of this has changed. A lot of writers no longer have agents. They They primarily work through managers now um, almost exclusively. Um, some even just work through entertainment lawyers, uh, and some just rep themselves. Um, there are some agencies who have made the changes that the WGA requested. And they're, you know, um, there's a bunch of stuff, you know, your, your listeners can read about that, learn more about that stuff. Um, the, the chairman of my board, by the way, the, of the program that I want to run act one program. Um, he's the, um, assistant executive director of the WGA West and so Irish Guild of America. And he, um, he's a part of a lot of these negotiations. And, um, so he it was very interested talking to him about how kind of all this stuff was going down. But anyway, so a lot of these agencies have made some changes. So, so there are some, um, uh, people known writers now who are being rep more and more by uh, agents again, by sp- specific agencies. Um, anyway, so that's the primary way. And so that's, that's the frustrating thing for uh, a lot of people is I can't get in and pitch my show because how do I get access to these people who hold the keys to the kingdom? Um, because I can't just cold call them and say, Hey, you know, my name is, you know, John Smith. And I have, I think I have the best, you know, I have a great idea for a TV show uh, on Netflix. You know, who do I talk to? You know, they're not going to return your phone call. They're not going to return your email. Um, However, um there are like exceptions, right? Like you can, you know, part of the hustle of being a filmmaker out here and being a storyteller, a writer, producer, whatever, is you, you've got you've got to go to parties, you've got to go um to wherever you can get togethers and you've got to build relationships with people. Um, because there's kind of a um there's a mentality sometimes that i think people misunderstand the business they they think some people think that there are these you know these guard dogs of the of the business and their 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 job is to keep people out so they're not interested in all your ideas so i can't get in because these people won't let me in but the truth is it's actually the other way around they they always look hollywood is always looking for the next great script so they're always looking for the next new person. Matter of fact, so many of these development guys, they want to be known as the person who found the next Aaron Sorkin or the next Shonda Rhimes or the next Ryan Murphy or, or the next Steven Spielberg. Year, right? Like they, they want to be known as the person that broke that person who found them. So you have producers and production companies and, and development executives. They, they want to, to meet fresh new blood. right? But the issue always comes with um, you you go with the safer bet, right? And the safer bet is all about who has executed before. Because if someone wants to actually go down a road with you, go down a path with you with some money, with some financial, they they want to mitigate that risk. And so if you're a first timer who's done nothing, you are you are a, uh, you're considered a more significant risk for them. Even though your script is great, you are considered a greater risk than them. Than someone who brings to them like a, a good script, but maybe not a great script, but they are a proven commodity because they've made one or two things that that they brought in on time, on budget, and um, and um, and, was, and was maybe successful in somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. So um, part of that frustration for a lot of people in pitching stuff is. Man, I, I, want, I, I get so frustrated because I can't get in there. And, you know, They don't want to hear me. They don't want to hear me. Well, the truth is, is, it's not that they don't want to hear you. It's that even if they heard you, what are we going to do with you? Because you're not a proven commodity. So it's a, it's a bit of a catch-22. And that's one of the things why I always tell people is don't sit around and wait. Just go create. We are at a different time in the business. The business has gone through just cataclysmic. I'm not cataclysmically but just such sweeping changes over the past couple of years because of technology and streaming services and all this kind of stuff. these things are so different now that um nothing is stopping you from being a content creator nothing nothing is stopping you from being a content. so even while you're waiting to get your big break even while you're waiting to get that big meeting you should be out creating content because What you want to do is you want to create something that gets their attention so that when you do finally get a chance to meet with them, you have something that actually is worth some sort of value that they go, wow, looks like this person can do something. Looks like they can pull something off on time, under budget, that other people want to watch other than their grandmother.
1: So I think that kind of wraps up our favorite bits episode and kind of like saying happy 20 episodes for the FGI podcast, we've we've made it, and I just want to give a quick sh- thank you to everyone that listens. We're well over, you know, our kind of benchmarks for where we wanted our listener numbers to be, and we couldn't have got there without everyone. And we've made it to 20 episodes, so you know, here's next milestone. We'll be at hopefully 50 and and more. Just thanks everyone.
0: Thank you, um, and, and we really um. We're really excited that we're able to continue to release this every monday um it's it's been one of our goals to just make sure that this is a continuous weekly podcast and we're we're able to do that because of our listeners kevin
1: it's the end of the podcast
0: josh that means that everybody needs to stop what they're doing
1: write us a review and subscribe for
0: future episodes
1: yeah i mean it would really help us out a lot it helps us kind of get to the you know new and noteworthy section top of the charts help us get new people New, interesting, and lovely film people on this podcast.
0: Along with that, you can follow us on Instagram at FGI Podcast. And you can also check out more episodes and more information, more bios and information for all of our speakers at FGI
2: This
1: podcast was also recorded live in front of a studio audience. And we flew everyone out on Delta Airlines. No, but um, it was recorded live at Two Stories Media Studios and it's presented by Greenland Entertainment and Two Stories Media.